Welcome back to the HBS podcast, where we discuss all things history, philosophy, and social studies of science. I am your host, Samara Greenwood, and today I am on site at the Australasian Association of Philosophy Conference, which was held this year in Melbourne at ACU. I met up with Dr. Rachel Brown, who is a philosopher of biology and director for the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University, or ANU, in Canberra. Rachel was kind enough to agree to meet with me after a very full schedule. Over the last couple of weeks, she has attended over 50 presentations across three different meetings. As we met at the conference, there is some background noise, but we've done our best to keep it as non-intrusive as possible. Here I should also mention Rachel runs her own wonderful podcast on philosophy and science called The P-Value. Her podcast can be found on most podcasting services and we have also provided a link in the show notes. Rachel has expertise across many areas within HPS, but today she will be talking with us about values in science and in particular the downfall of the value-free ideal in science. The traditional stance is that science works best when scientists do not bring personal or social values to their work, particularly when it comes to interpreting data or assessing hypotheses. But this value-free ideal is challenged on two key fronts. First, at a practical level, can science really be ever conducted without values? And second, would we want it to even if we could? In other words, if used appropriately, can values provide a beneficial component to the scientific process? Hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining me on the HBS podcast. Thanks for having me. First, I wanted to ask, what was your journey to history and philosophy of science like? Kind of accidental, kind of not. So I first studied a history and philosophy of science subject as a year 12 student. So we could do a university subject and you could pick all sorts like biology, math, whatever you liked. And uh, one of the options was history and philosophy of science. And in my case, it seemed to have two really good sort of reasons in favour for it. One was that you actually did it at the university. Uh, And I thought, well, that's pretty good. You get to go to university. But the other reason was that sort of my family, a lot of people had gone to Melbourne Uni and done history and philosophy of science and they'd liked it. They all did science degrees though. So they had all thought this was a nice side thing to do. So I did the subject. I I did a couple of subjects, one on history of astronomy and one uh, like an introductory subject. And I really enjoyed them. And so I thought, well, when I do my degree, I'll do an arts degree so I can do a major in history and philosophy of science and a science degree. And I sort of just thought I would ultimately be a scientist. I wouldn't do history and philosophy of science after the degree. But it turned out that the sort of questions I was interested in weren't really questions that were being answered in the zoology department, questions about how what methods you might use. So I ended up doing an honours project, which was in history and philosophy of science, about whether a set of studies showed that chimpanzees have a particular type of cognitive process called a theory of mind. I also had a supervisor in zoology and they, I did all of those requirements as well. And so then once I'd done that, then I started a master's and I sort of kept going. It, it wasn't really intended. In fact, it's quite funny. My, my grandmother, who was the first person who told me about history and philosophy of science, um, I remember once she said, you weren't really supposed to, <laughs> it was supposed to be just a side project. It wasn't supposed to be your actual <laughs> kind of end point. But, uh, yeah, that's how I fell into uh, history and philosophy of science. Uh-huh. And what are the topics that you research most prominently now? Well, there's a range. I'm a bit of a magpie. I'm a philosopher of biology. Um, there's sort of a few 
general domains that I'm interested in. So one is still like my honours project, so the methodology of comparative psychology. Another topic I'm interested in is concepts in evolutionary biology, particularly concepts around what's called evolvability or the potential of lineages to evolve. And then the other sort of questions I'm interested in are a sort of more philosophy of mind questions to do with uh, what counts as cognition or not. But to be honest, I guess I'm mostly the thing that I that most drives me in the projects I pick probably are the scientists or people that I can work with. And so that means I tend to be quite varied depending on who I'm talking to and what I'm talking to them about. Mm, mm, absolutely. So what's the topic that you are going to be discussing with us today? So I'm going to talk about the value-free ideal. And I would say my parochial view on it is the value-free ideal and its downfall. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the topic of values in science. Can you tell us first what the value-free ideal is and then what's wrong with it? (laughs) So historically, uh, and I think probably in the general public, people think that good science is value-free and what we, or we might say objective. And the thought is that what scientists say is true should be determined solely by the facts, the evidence that they have about the way the world is, and that their social background or the social context shouldn't play any role in their decision-making. So one question is, is that that the ideal we want, even if we couldn't achieve it? So is there such a view that's possible, kind of a view from nowhere? And then another question is sort of practically, is it just ever possible to get rid of values in science? And there's been a big debate probably over the last 30 years or a big shift in in philosophy of science where people have pushed back on the idea firstly that a value-free science is what we should be aiming for and secondly um, that it's achievable in the first place. Mm. And so there's a distinction here I believe between epistemic values and non-epistemic values traditionally in the literature. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah so we can think about different types of values. So one type of value we might have when we're deciding between two hypotheses or whether we're going to accept one hypothesis over another is whether it's simple or not, for example, or whether it is beautiful or not, for example, say in physics. And the thought is that those are a type of value which is called epistemic values. Simplicity and beauty are supposed to track truth in some way. And so those are things that we can prefer in hypotheses above and beyond kind of the evidence we have for those hypotheses, whereas there are other things like non-epistemic values like, well, one would just be, I prefer hypotheses that postulate blue entities. Well, that would be a non-epistemic value. The thought is that's just purely something esoteric about me. But similarly, we can think about cases in the history of science where people have had a priori expectations about what hypotheses are going to be true or not and those expectations have colored how they've done science and we generally think about those as bad cases so for example in the history of primatology people had a tendency to view groups of primates as being male dominated and having certain types of social dynamics that reflected how people thought that males and females would relate and it turns out that that's an a prior expectation which isn't borne out in the evidence but it wasn't until people like uh, Jane Goodall went and did studies who weren't men that it became apparent that what scientists were saying was value-laden and value-laden by these kind of non-epistemic values. Great and then is there ways that these values can actually um, work in positive ways in science? 
Traditionally, what people have said is that it's okay to have the epistemic values and not to have the non-epistemic ones when it comes to theory and hypothesis acceptance, basically. But it might be that what I choose to study can be influenced by the non-epistemic values. So, for example, whether I choose to study the naked mole rat or the koala looks like that's not a choice bedded down by epistemic values. That's something about me as a person and my society. The thought is that's okay, or at least some philosophers say that's okay. Most would say that's fine. The real issue is when your values start impinging upon what you decide is true or false. And so about 20 years ago, a philosopher of science called Heather Douglas revived this idea of inductive risk. And the thought is that when we're deciding whether or not to accept a hypothesis, almost always our evidence underdetermines uh, whether or not the hypothesis is true or not. Right? We have to take the evidence and say, how likely is it that we got this evidence and the hypothesis turns out uh, to be false? And so that's why we have hypothesis testing and statistics, etc. And we have to set a boundary as to where we think we've got enough evidence. And what Heather Douglas pointed out was that that boundary, so typically, for example, you might say you have to have a p-value of uh, less than 0.05. She said, well, that's arbitrary. And it's set by our values, and they're not epistemic values. They're non-epistemic values, and they relate to the risk of error. So uh, how likely is it that I'm going to accept a hypothesis in error? Uh, and she says, well, it should differ depending on what the outcomes of accepting the hypothesis in error are likely to be. So the case she points to is the use of dioxin, a uh, sort of pollutant. And she says, look, there's all this evidence from animals about whether or not it can harm you or not. And there's this question about, well, how good should our evidence be that it doesn't harm you, given that if we get that wrong, we could end up in a really bad situation. And it looks like our evidential bar for the dioxin case should be higher perhaps than it might be for something like, did the universe start with a big bang? Because that seems to have no social consequences. And so that seems like a case where values not only do influence science and they unavoidably do. So this comes back to that very mm -hmm. first kind of distinction. It looks like we can't avoid this influence of values because the world doesn't fix for us what is going to be the right standard, or at least it doesn't fix entirely. And secondly, it looks like a case where values play an important role in making sure that science plays the right role that we want it to play in society, which is guiding good decision-making and good action. Hmm. Going back to your earlier example with primatology, mm -hmm. it's a subject that I actually study quite a lot, this um, particular instance. You know, we have this initial period where there is this male bias in the way behaviour is viewed. And then a lot of scientists enter into primatology that are also engaged in feminism and bring some of the learning they've brought from there into primatology. And now for some um, commentators, this was seen as an interesting case of bringing political values into science and whether that was valid or invalid. What, how would you see that case? That's an interesting case in that I think it shows the importance of different perspectives in science. So there's a, a tendency, if you think that the value-free ideal is right, then a good scientist is one that's disconnected from the facts in some kind of way and extremely kind of, sort of emotionally disconnected, right? And the thought is that then that gives us access to this sort of set of um, mind-independent truths. 
Now, I think what those cases show is that different types of background can sort of shine a different light on the same set of facts. One worry you might have is, oh, well, it just means then that things that we accept as relativist, it just depends on who we are. That's too strong. What I think of it is like a figure on a stage. In fact, I got this analogy from a colleague, Jeff Brennan, who uh, sadly departed, but I think it's a great analogy. He used it to, to talk about different approaches to philosophy. But I think it works for science too. You've got, you know, a figure on the stage and there are different spotlights on the figure. And one spotlight on the figure casts a certain set of shadows and then another spotlight on the same figure casts a different set of shadows. But ultimately we end up with, through a lot of different viewpoints, getting some picture of the figure without the shadow issue. And I think that's kind of how I view this way of thinking about science. There are going to be some perspectives which are more informative than others. One of the big challenges we have is working out when we're in the good case and the bad case. But merely the fact that someone's values or someone's perspective is influencing how they're viewing a case, it shouldn't rule out that they can provide useful information. And if anything, it seems like what the history of science has showed us, especially the last kind of 50 to 100 years when we've had a real diversification of who's doing science, is that diverse views help us to triangulate mm. to the truth, right? So having one set of views can't tell whether you're in the good case or the bad case. Whereas if even if it's just having you know, 10 different people look at your data, it still seems like that helps you to decide when you're in the good case or the bad case. So, yeah, I, I think I take a kind of perspectival view on this. I think we can be realists. We can think that there are different views and that, that they're going to shine a light, kind of a different light on, on the way the world is, but it doesn't follow that then we have to think that all of the views are, um, we have to hold all of them to be fully true at the same time. We can think of them all as being kind of approximately true and differentially so, mm -hmm. and then the real challenge is sort of picking out from that what the actual truths are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and that analogy is fabulous. I haven't heard that one before. And I know with the shadows, that sense that these different perspectives not only are shining a different light, but they're shining light into those shadows behind. Well, and casting really their own shadows, right? Yes. Which is super important to be aware of. Like just because we might kind of socially think the feminist view is, is perhaps a better view, right? That doesn't mean it's the view. It seems like we have reasons to think that it might be less biased than the other view, but it doesn't follow that there's not going to be some things that it just overlooks or casts in a way that's not quite accurate yes um and so that's the that's the tricky part and i think i think nicely at least in the case of science the world pushes back fortunately so if we've made you know, big mistakes it should tell us right we can come up with these hypotheses from different perspectives and we can test them these different perspectives can actually help us to find out about the way the world is rather than hinder us or, or bias us in some way yeah, no, that's fabulous. And so I was just wondering if you have any more examples of ways that values can enter into scientific practice. I think it depends on where you draw the lines around scientific practice. So if we start with kind of what are we going to study? That's a clear place that values influence science. I suppose if we lived in a world where there was no restriction on what we could do, then perhaps you might think ideally we would do everything. But we don't live in that world, right? That's a complete fantasy. So it seems right that there is some influence there of values. I do think there's a challenge there, which is if we go purely instrumental, then it looks like a whole pile of bits of science which have been very helpful to us wouldn't have been sort of funded in the first place, for example. So there's, there's an interesting kind of question there about how we weigh up different kinds of values and whether or not we think that science should be done for purely instrumental reasons or something like that. 
Um, but that's one place where values influence science. That's what do we choose to do? Then there's questions about how we design the experiment. And again, I think values play a role there. Again, this comes back, I think, to perspective. There will be things that from your perspective seem more relevant than other things. And this is kind of what happened in the primate case, right? There were parameters that they just didn't register as being significant, so they didn't measure them, etc. Now, I do think a good scientist tries to step back and lets their perspective influence them only so much. But here and again, it comes back to these two questions. If we could have a view from nowhere, would that be the best way to start the experiments? And I don't know that it is because it turns out that it's sort of like modeling, having multiple models, right? It seems like the same kind of thing. You want to have multiple kind of approaches to the same thing, and that's a good thing. And then we also have this issue of, well, you can't get out of it anyway. The last thing, which I think is also really interesting, is then what scientists should do with their evidence, right? So there was a really interesting article, I think it was in Science or Nature. It was a comment by some uh, population geneticists about what ethical responsibility people in their field working on human genetic differences had for presenting their data in a way that it couldn't be misused by white supremacists. And so their claim was that we have a moral responsibility. We know that our graphs and things like that are being taken by white supremacists and misused, misrepresented. Uh, so we have a moral responsibility to present our data in a way that reduces that likelihood. And I think that, again, is super interesting some people would push back and say, no, that's not the responsibility of the scientists. That's putting too much onto the scientists. It's sort of like blaming the motor mower manufacturer for the person who does a, I don't know, motor mowing rampage. Um, <laughs> you produce the data and if it gets misused, it's not your fault. I think that's a mistake, right? I mean, we think in the motor mower case, it's, tr it's a mistake too, right? If we really thought that people were going to do that, there would be restrictions on what one could what sorts of functions a motor mower could have, etc. Yeah, so it seems like we can't totally abrogate ourselves of responsibility there. We think that in society when people produce things that they have some responsibility when it comes to misuse. I guess there's a, there again though, there are interesting questions about how far that should go. So you know, in bioethics there's like a literature on dual use dilemmas, right? It's a nice case in, in uh, Canberra actually where some scientists were investigating a, a way to stop uh, mouse plagues and they were manipulating mouse pox which is a, a disease that mice get and they discovered a way you could manipulate smallpox right to make it worse and then there was a question about well whether they should publish or not you might think there's also a question whether they should do that science or not and again that raises some of these questions about values because it looks like if we're just going into this purely from an objective kind of view from nowhere standpoint, then none of those questions should be a question for scientists. I have a tendency to think that there's a, a middle ground there. I don't think we should expect scientists to be ethical experts, but we should expect them to be... They need to be aware of their role as experts in society and people with a particular type of power. Mm. So what do you think might be a value for the general public when thinking about values in science? How can this be made relevant for them? I think it's quite important when the public is thinking about how to interpret scientific evidence and also how to view scientists who engage in public advocacy. So there's a tendency to think that if a scientist is kind of getting their hands dirty when it comes to advocacy, that they're overstepping the mark. So we see this in 
conservation science, um, in climate science. And in part, that's because I think in the background, there's this expectation of the value-free ideal. We also see that we saw this during the pandemic as well. So politicians kept saying, we just need to read off the science what to do when the science doesn't actually tell you what to do. It might tell you facts which are useful for decision-making, but even then, as I've just pointed out, what counts as the facts depends a bit on what you set your standard of evidence to be. And so then there's this question, you know, what role should scientists be playing there? One possibility is you say, well, look, it, it all just the scientists just should be reporting the data and their confidence intervals, and then public policymakers make the choices. I think the challenge there is, of course, that the best people to interpret what the evidence is telling us is scientists, but also we know that public policymakers and the public are really quite bad at understanding data and and these kinds of um, claims about confidence intervals. And so it seems like then it starts to push on the scientists to do more than just do the science. Also in the context of, say, climate change and conservation biology, etc., very often it's very clear what the implications for public policy will be of a particular finding. At this point, Rachel and I needed to pause the conversation to allow a large crowd of historians to pass by. Once their raucous behaviour died down, we continued. So if we think about these cases like climate change, conservation biology, and in fact I just saw a great talk about this on fire ecology actually from a woman called Asia Watkins. Keep an eye out for her, she's great. In those cases, when people are doing their work, very often it's very tightly linked to a particular outcome in public policy. So I might be doing this particular bit of ecological work in order to assess whether this particular development should go ahead or not, right? And so then it becomes very, very clear, you know, what the relationship between my evidence and the outcome is. I think this throws up a whole lot of interesting questions. One possibility is you say, well, look, the risk is too great of the scientist being value-laden in a bad way. So they should just step back and, and be purely just reporting the facts. There's another sense in which that's just impossible. So I think these cases are super interesting. I know Heather Douglas has sort of explored this a lot in her recent book, but I think there is this really interesting question that keeps coming up in public debate about what the role of scientists should be in public policy. And a lot of that debate is predicated on this idea that a good scientist is one that keeps their hands clean. And it just seems like that's a real misunderstanding of how science works. I do think that there's a reverse thing, which is what's the onus on a scientist to be involved, right? So if you look at the stuff to do with COVID-19, there was a question, you know, if you were a scientist working on the vaccine or on vaccine efficacy, do you have an obligation to become a public spokesperson all of a sudden? That seems like too much of an obligation. Going back to that very start, and you made that distinction between the value-free ideal and this idea of completely objective mm -hmm. science and the alternative, where do you fit? What do you think is a, is a useful framework for thinking about this? I think it's clear that we can't hold on to the value-free ideal, that both in terms of actual the practicalities of science, the value-free ideal is an illusion, but also in terms of ideal science, a value-free science or an attempt at value-free science, I don't think that that would be a good science. Now, it's not to say I think that values should hold sway. There are obvious cases where that's gone wrong, right? So there are these bad cases where people have deliberately misled with cases of research misconduct 
to do with values and in some of those cases it's not nefarious in the sense of the person wanting fame or doing it for their own personal ends it's because they think that a certain type of scientific result will have a certain type of policy outcome that they take to be a good outcome so i think that there has to be a line somewhere as to where you say that use of values went beyond what's acceptable but i think if we're going to work out what that line is and have a nuanced account of the relationship between science and values it starts by wholeheartedly just accepting that values are here to stay and they're just a part of science like any other part of science which we can think in a more nuanced way about fabulous Thank you so much. That seems like a great spot to finish the interview. So I just wanted to thank you so much for chatting with me today, Rachel. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on the HBS podcast. A reminder that we have provided links to relevant content in the show notes, as well as a full transcript of the episode. Note, we also run a popular blog where we not only talk about the podcast, but other general HPS news and items. You can sign up at our pretty slick website, hpsunimelb.org. And yes, we are still on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and we have recently joined Threads as well. Finally, my co-host Indigo Keel and I would like to thank the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support of the podcast. And we look forward to having you back again next time.